Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. My guest today is philosopher and Georgetown University professor Jason Brennan. Jason is the author or co-author of many books, including Why Not Capitalism, Markets Without Limits, Against Democracy, In Defense of Openness, and the book we are discussing today, co-authored with Hélène Landemore, Debating Democracy, Do We Need More or Less? Jason, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. To start with, this is not a typical book. It's a debate volume. Can you explain broadly like the layout of the book and maybe just a brief outline of the positions you and Landamore are taking and arguing about? So in philosophy, uh, you know, it's meant to be a, a dialogue. Philosophers love to argue. That's all we do for all day. So it's pretty common uh, to have all these books where there's two or perhaps even more authors, each taking contrary positions on some topic. So the layout of the book is I spend about three chapters explaining why maybe we should have less democracy, why democracy is not the be all end all of justice and sometimes an impediment of it. Uh, Landamore spends about three chapters uh, trying to argue that, well, the stuff we have in the real world isn't even real democracy anyway, and we should have a more open form of democracy. And then we spend some time responding to each other, uh, like the arguments the other person made. You know, so hopefully what what these books do is it shows two earnest people taking the debate seriously, pushing contrary positions, responding to one another, showing what a good dialogue could be. If you spend too much time on social media, reading a book like this is really jarring because that is exactly the impression you get of two people who are it's not that there's never any moments of like there's contention there and sometimes it even feels contentious, but you're clearly taking each other seriously. Like that's that's the main thing that I, I wish sometimes when uh, debates get unfriendly is not necessarily that everyone be friendly all the time, but they take the position that they're arguing against seriously and treat it fairly and accurately. And that definitely comes through, even though I think there are moments, well, I'll say on her part where she characterized you in a way that I didn't think was accurate because probably because I'm more familiar with your work, I, I wasn't able to make a similar judgment about your characterization of her, but it definitely felt very serious and charitable and, and was fun to read. Yeah, great. So how does it, how does a debate volume like this work on a practical level? Is there like the way there are like, you know, Oxford style debates when there there's some particular structure for how two debating partners might go back and forth? Are there standard ways that authors writing a debate volume together might compose their portions? Usually you talk it over ahead of time to make sure that you have something you really are debating, that you're not talking past each other, because um, you don't have this thing where you're you're just simply debating the meaning of words in some sort of useless way. Um, so when you when you kind of pitch the volume to an editor, or sometimes the editors come to you and pitch these volumes to us, uh, you sort of agree roughly what you're going to do ahead of time. Uh, so everyone has kind of a rough plan, and then you just write it, and then you give it to the other person. I mean, this book in particular literally grew out of we were both invited to pen to give uh, to do a debate on this topic at some center there. And after we talked for like half an hour each, I said to her, you know what, we should just write this whole thing up and I bet Oxford would publish it. And they did. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. And they're going to translate into French, too. So it'll be nice. She's a you know, she's French. So it'll be nice for her to have one of her books turned into a French book. And both yeah. of you have written fairly extensively prior to this debate volume about your respective positions I, I don't want to say, even though you have a book called Against De Democracy, is that is it fair to say that that's, that's a little bit uh, tongue-in-cheek to get attention? I mean, the, the impression I get is more like, is it Ilya Soman's book, like 10% less democracy? You're saying like, what's your phrase? One cheer for democracy rather than three? Yeah, like half a cheer or something like that. That's oh, right. half a cheer. Okay, okay. Uh, I, think, I think that's what it ended up being. Um, I haven't read that book in a while. Uh, originally, that book was actually going to be called Against Politics. That was the original title of it. And the thesis was... Politics makes us mean and dumb. We should try to minimize the amount of it in our lives. And we should recognize that democracy is not an inherently just system. If it's good, it's good only because it's better than the alternatives. And it has some serious flaws. And we should be open to experimenting with systems that improve upon it, um, even if they're not fully democratic. So that was the claim. Um, it was really going to focus on 
how politics makes us worse people. Um, I think everyone sort of accepts that. You can go on Facebook and get instant verification of that, but everyone thinks that's about everybody else and not them. So that was what the book was going to be. And, and I think it was maybe two weeks before I was going to press, my editor either called me or emailed me and said, you know, if we call it against politics, people will read it very sympathetically, but very few people will read it. And if we call it against democracy, everyone will read it, but they'll read it unsympathetically. What do you want to do? And I said, well, my last book was all about commodification. So show me the money. Uh, and it worked. Uh, and it it came out at the right time because um, that was the year that Brexit happened and Trump became the presumptive nominee and then was elected. So uh, those things upset the intelligentsia quite a bit. Uh, and, and rightly so, I think. And uh, so as a result, I think I think we sold six translation rights to the book before it came out in English. Yeah. So in a way, um, what Landamore and I are doing here is we've both written extensively on these things. She's defending alternative models of democracy. I'm criticizing a lot of the philosophical arguments that say democracy is inherently just and criticizing a lot of the arguments that try to say democracy is smart, despite appearances to the contrary. Um, and this book kind of encapsulates all this stuff, puts it really quick, like puts in a very concise format so that you can really see us going after the other person's view. Um, I do I do agree that there are times when there's probably times when I don't quite get her view quite right. And there's probably times when she I, I'm sure there's times she doesn't get my view quite right either. But, uh, you know, we are at least giving it an honest effort to do so. Yeah, it's inevitable that that's going to happen. I mean, you guys are both professional philosophers and neither of your positions can be, I think, stated really simplistically. So it, it takes real work to understand an opponent's position and you're definitely making an effort. I want to respond to something you said a second ago when you were writing against democracy, originally called against politics, that politics makes us mean and dumb. Can you relate that with you talk about something in this book about how when votes matter in an election, like when they're small enough and your vote actually matters, it makes you nice. I'm sorry, when they don't matter, you're nice, but stupid. And when they do matter, you're mean, but smart. Yeah. Is that is there a tension there? Yeah, I think this is like I have to say is like the central dilemma of uh, power. So the problem is something like this. Uh, people are not all that great, morally speaking. Um, and I teach classes on this at Georgetown. I, I teach all these classes on human behavior and dealing with human behavior. And and frankly, it's really quite depressing. Um, I think if anything, I think people are a lot worse now 10 years ago than I, that now I think people are a lot worse than I did say 10 years ago before I really started studying this stuff. But anyways, uh, what tends to happen with people is this. When you spread power out among the many, um, individual units of power don't make much of a difference. Your vote has very little efficacy. It's unlikely your vote will ever have any effect on the world uh, and, or change anything or change any policy. The result of that is you take away people's incentive to be selfish. Voting selfishly is not a selfish thing. Uh, if you want to simply promote your self-interest, you have much better things to do than vote. You can give like calculations on this, but a good way of thinking about it is like, I have a higher chance of dying in a car accident driving around to the voting booth than I do of like changing the outcome of the election. Uh, if I really want to promote my self-interest, I should stay home and play guitar or do something else. So the result of that is when you spread power out among the many, they tend to vote in symbolic ways. They express their commitment to, to justice or it really to kind of like impress others with their moral behavior to kind of look good. They kind of be nicer. And so when we look at voter behavior, they tend to be what we call nationalist sociotropes, meaning they tend to vote maybe for what they perceive to be the national interest, though even that's probably too generous to voters. But then they don't pay any attention to what they're doing. They don't know the facts. They don't know what the candidates stand for. They don't eval They don't know the platforms of the candidates. They don't have the uh, aptitude or the knowledge to evaluate those platforms. They don't know what the candidates have done in the past. They don't know what they promise to do in the future. Pretty much for any bit of knowledge you might think a voter should have to vote well, they don't have that. However, when you spread, when you concentrate power in the hands of the few, and I mean the few is in a small number, like Landamore might characterize some of the things I I defend as the, the power of the few, but, it, but it's not. It's the power of the many, just not quite so many. Uh, when you put it in the hands of a very small number of people, they suddenly start becoming, now their power matters and they treat it like it matters. But because people tend to be predominantly selfish, they tend to use that power mostly for their self-interest at the expense of others. And there's a lot of reasons to think this, including um, there's a set of experiments that were done um, about, about 11 years ago or so by some political scientists at MIT and elsewhere, where they would put people in these voting games where they were voting on, they could collect information and vote and there were real payoffs, uh, monetary payoffs to how they voted. And what they found was when people had something like, I can't remember the exact number at the top of my head anymore, but it was like, if you had like a one in a hundred chance of being decisive, uh, people would vote selfishly, but they pay a lot of attention and like really 
carefully calculate how to vote. And when they had a low chance of being decisive, they would like vote very quickly and not really think about it. But then they tended to be like nicer in their aims. And so that's the kind of thing we see. You get put the power in the hands of the many, stupid but nice, power in the hands of the few, smart but selfish. In a way, everyone knows that, uh, you know, like the Republican founders of the United States were aware of this sort of dilemma. And they, when they were constructing the Constitution, their goal was in a way to try to split the difference, to try to make the smart, informed people acting on their self-interest serve the less informed people and serve everybody. Whether it works, I mean, it works better than dictatorship, but it doesn't quite work as intended. So a lot of your view rests, not all, but a lot of your view rests on this kind of literature on basically the deficiencies of voters and Mm -hmm. especially like their knowledge deficiencies. Can you say a little bit more about why we think that voters are so deficient in the knowledge that matters and why does that knowledge matter? A good way of thinking about it is... um, Think of how democracy is supposed to work. This will be kind of a long-winded answer, if that's okay. You know, what we teach our kids, like, you know, this one of my kids were taught, like, like one of my kids was taught, like, last year in, like, a civics class is something like this. Voters have a set of interests and goals. Like, every individual voter has interests and goals. They don't have to be selfish. They could be publicly spirited and so on. And they go and learn about how the world works. And as a result, they form some sort of ideology or set of political preferences. And then they vote for the candidates or parties that closely match those interests. Or if they think they have no chance of winning, maybe like the next best option that has a real chance. Everybody's supposedly doing this at the same time. Um, At the same time, the parties, in order to win, have to put forward platforms that appeal to these voters. So on election day, when the people vote, what happens is the winning group tends to reflect the policy preferences or at least policy bents of the people or a large segment of the people. And then when they get that power, they try to actually implement that stuff. And if they do a bad job, we pay attention to them and we vote them out five years later. So that's sort of the model of democracy most of us are working with. Pretty much every aspect of that is false. It is true that politicians run candidates they think will win, but they're responding to the way voters behave and voters don't behave that way. What we find is, in fact, most voters have very few political opinions. Um, This is actually a weird thing because when you poll people and ask them for their opinion about something, they'll give you one on the spot. And sometimes you can get really funny things like you might remember a study from a few years ago where they're asking people, should we bomb Agrabah or Agrabah is the fictional city? I do remember that. In Aladdin, right? Yeah, exactly. They don't like to say, I don't know. So they'll just tell you on the spot. But interestingly, early studies, like the very earliest studies on voter behavior that were done like in the 50s through the early 60s, one of the things they did was ask people their opinions about certain issues and then ask them the same question over and over again over a period of like six years. And uh, Converse, this famous guy, Converse published this stuff. And it turned out that like the correlation between people's political beliefs on these surveys over any given period of time was almost zero. Uh, And so there's a really nice book you can read called Neither Liberal Nor Conservative that goes through 75 years of studies like this. And it basically shows that overwhelmingly Americans are politically agnostic. They have very few stable political opinions, very few firm political opinions. They mostly don't really think have much in the way of belief. Maybe only about 15 out of 100 Americans or maybe like like a high estimate be like 20 out of 100 are actually ideological. The rest are pretty much just agnostic. So that's part of it. So they're not even voting on the basis of belief anyway. But then when you look at what they know, um, again, for 75 years, people have been studying what do Americans know about politics? And the answer is not much, right? So if you think, if you in your head come up with a list of the things you think a voter should know to be informed, they probably don't know any of that other than who the president is. People typically don't know who their candidate is. They don't know which party controls Congress. They don't know any of the major bills that have been passed. They don't know uh, how their candidate voted on these things. They don't know the size of the government, what the government spends its money on, what different government leaders have the capacity to do. They're not able to evaluate the policies that they're promoting because they don't have the social scientific knowledge to assess them. So if one candidate says, I want to have free trade and the other one says, I want to restrict free trade, they don't know what it would take to evaluate those things. Um, they, They basically know next to nothing. They don't know they don't know even things that you might think are really easy things like who did we fight in World War II? They don't know that. In 1964, most Americans didn't know whether the USR, USSR was part of NATO, NATO, the alliance created to contain yeah. the USSR, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It, you can just go on and on. Uh, 
and depending on which set of studies you look at, you get something like 35% to maybe 50% of Americans are just political know-nothings. They know basically nothing. And then the final thing is like, the weird thing about this though, is that most people vote for the same party every single time, despite all this, despite being agnostic, despite not having real political opinions. Um, there, there are very few genuinely independent voters. Most people who claim that they're independent are actually what we call closet partisans, meaning they don't want to admit they're Republican or Democrat, but in fact, they always vote for that party or they just stay home. And part of what goes on here in a really good metaphor for what voter behavior is, is to think about sports fandom and the psychology of sports fandom. So I'm a sports fan. I'm not bashing sports when I say this, but I'm from the New England area originally. And so if I, growing up, if I'm wearing a Red Sox t-shirt or a Patriots t-shirt or jersey or something like that, and if I know some stats about the players, this sort of signals to other people in New England that I'm one of them. It shows that I care about them, that I'm a loyal member of the community. And the more I root for the team, the more loyal I am and the more I get social benefits, the stupider I am about how I root for them, the more benefits I get. So think about like, imagine six years ago, Tom Brady throws a pass and uh, our player, like he drops it or something. And there's like another player nearby from some rival team. And I'm like, oh, it's pass interference. And you guys watching this can tell that it's not pass interference, but you're also fans of the Patriots. And I'm like, oh, the ref's blind. Clearly it's pass interference. Like the weird thing is, even though I'm being stupid, you're like, well, Jay, you know, he's a really good guy. He's really loyal to us because he always thinks that it's unfair to the Patriots. So you actually get this weird social benefit for being stupid when it comes to sports. This like the kind of more team oriented you are to the point of like rejecting reality, the more you get rewarded. This kind of thing seems to be going on with politics as well. A lot of voter behavior is just signaling to other members of your tribe, of your, your ethnic group or your identity group, that you're a loyal member of the team. And voting and even expressing political opinions is largely like waving the Steelers' terrible towel. Like a really good example of this is, you know, if you if you do, I'm in my like downstairs, and if you walk out this door and go out the front door or something like that, um, and walk around my neighborhood, you'll see all these signs up that say things like, in this house, we believe no human is illegal. None of them believe that. They actually do believe humans are illegal. I think, I mean, I think humans are legal because I'm just asking the laws. I'm actually an open borders advocate. I think everyone should be allowed to move everywhere. There's one other person in the neighborhood who thinks that. Like, So there's two of us who have this econ background who think this. My neighbors are all in favor of vastly restricted borders. Uh, they, they want it to be the kind of thing where 99.9% .9 of the world is not allowed to move here. They want restrictions. So they don't actually believe no human is illegal. But the weird thing is you put up these signs that say no human is illegal in what you don't believe in order to impress other people who also don't believe that. Because Lots it's the kind of thing that someone from their tribe would obviously say. Someone from the other tribe, from the red tribe, would not say that. Yeah, exactly. It's not even, and they themselves don't even believe it. Like yeah. the red tribe, the blue tribe, like the red tribe, is in favor of nearly completely restricted borders, just slightly less restricted. 10% less restrictive. Yeah, not maybe, even. I wish maybe. they were. If they were, I would I would love them. I'd be like, they're amazing. That would be enough for me to like be really loyal to them. No, like it's like 99.5% versus 99.3%. Like that's the that's the thing. So they're saying like the purpose of that sign is basically to say F you Republicans, right? But it's weird. Like in order, it's, it'd be like we were in a society full of avowed atheists where everyone knows everyone else is an atheist, but we're putting up signs that say Christ is king. Right. It's this weird display thing that somehow shows loyalty to the group, but they don't even in this case, we know they don't even believe it. This is true of almost all the other stuff that they say. And the other weird thing that happens and, and a really good book to read on this to get the evidence for this is called Democracy for Realists by Christopher Aiken and Larry Bartels. Sometimes people do have beliefs that match their party, but it's much more common for it to be the reason you are pro-gun control is that you're a Democrat than it is to be the other way, which is you vote Democrat because you're pro-gun control. So what happens is a fairly decent segment of the society learns what their party stands for and just copies it. And when their party changes, they change. And they don't even know they change. We can survey them and get this. We're like, we surveyed you three months ago and you said you were pro-free trade and now you're pro-protectionism. What changed? And their answer is, that didn't change. I've always thought that. And if that seems weird, think to the sports analogy. At the Lansdowne pub right next to Fenway Park, there's a guy named Jimmy. 
And if you go up to Jimmy and ask him six years ago, what do you think about Tom Brady? Jimmy's like, he's the greatest ever. But now that Tom Brady doesn't play for us anymore, Jimmy earnestly and mistakenly says, I always thought he was a little bit overrated. I like the sports analogy of insisting on a bad call by a ref and how actually the stupider what you say is, the more credit you get because it's a credible signal that you are on the right team. If you are just honestly acknowledging a bad play when there was obviously a bad play, it doesn't signal anything. Scott right. Alexander has a long essay about this too, about how cases in the news, uh, whether it's of like police brutality or something, uh, something egregious happening in public schools, they only make good cases for partisan culture war type feuds if they're kind of silly and only a partisan would get on one side or the other. Because if, right. you know, if you don't prove that you're a Republican by being against murder, you don't prove that you're a Democrat by being, you know, in favor of kindness. You prove these things in other ways that are not all stupid, but the stupid things show your loyalty. You can't fix stupid in politics because stupid is the point. So you're going over these ways that voters are deficient in their knowledge and deficient in the way they form beliefs. In what ways does knowledge affect policy preferences? In a way, they don't really have many. I mean, that's kind of the problem. If anything, in Against Democracy, I was too nice to uh, to voters because I was saying, like, they might form deficient policy preferences and they vote for people for bad reasons who, like, advocate bad policy. But that's probably actually giving voters too much credit. It's more like uh, what Aiken and Martell say is that elections are effectively random events. So parties run platforms that kind of sound good and they kind of do what they want because they know that voters aren't going to keep track of them. Um, voters have very limited, limited reaction to, to political behavior and political outcomes in terms of how they vote. So maybe not much at all, but, but a good way of putting it is I'm not exactly sure how much voters matter, but you can kind of create a dilemma like this. If you think voters don't matter, like imagine you're like, and this, sometimes people actually say this to me, they go, you say voters are dumb and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, you've got all this evidence, but you know what, how voters vote doesn't make any difference anyway. People have said that to me dozens and dozens of times at all sorts of fancy universities over the past seven years in response to this kind of critique. And my response to them is to go, if you actually believe that, then why would you be in favor of democracy at all? You would It, it would follow from your view that like voters don't matter at all, Some really have some crazy things. Like I have here a magic wand and when I wave it, it will make voters even more ignorant. Do you think that would be a bad thing? I have another magic wand, and if I wave it, it will make them perfectly informed. Do you think that would be a good thing to wave that wand? I have here a magic wand, and when I wave it, it will make them all racist. Do you think that would be a bad thing? All right, now, you can keep going with examples like that, and everyone says, oh, no, 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 that would be bad. That would be good. So they all agree that voters matter to some significant degree. But then once you admit that, then you have to say, well, whatever influence they're having appears to be a pernicious one. Um, it is true that Voter influence is attenuated by many things. They elect representatives. Representatives don't just simply do what the voters want. And also a large part of what the voters say they want is just simply what the representatives say. Um, it's true that we have, uh, you know, in, in most states you have, or basically every modern government, you have a bureaucratic machinery that's largely independent of the legislature itself and kind of survives and does what it wants without much input from them. So it just comes down to, it's, there's a really good empirical question of just how much voters matter, but if they matter at all, this should be worrisome. And if they don't matter at all, then why would you care about democracy anyway? Is there an equivocation there at all between saying what voters do don't matter and what you know a voter does doesn't matter? Like my vote doesn't matter versus voters do matter. Meaning like if you wave the wand to make me stupider or smarter, I mean, it might improve or be a detriment to my life. But it doesn't matter to the electoral outcome. But if you wave it for everyone and, every, and the average intelligence goes up, I mean, does that distinction matter? Well, that's that's what when I'm asking about waving the wand. That's what I have in mind. Like, you know, I'm changing the group as a whole because, uh, again, individuals don't matter. But there's something like this that I think is important. And this is a way that you might try to resist some of my arguments. And, and this is what Landamore tries to do, too. Um, sometimes people might argue that under certain circumstances, the group as a whole is smart, even though perhaps none of the individuals in that group are smart. The group might behave as if it's informed despite not being informed. It might behave intelligently despite not being intelligent. So there's some real examples of this. Like I have in my hands here, um, the classic example of a number two pencil. 
Um, and there's a very famous old essay called I Pencil that gives a biography of a number two pencil. And the upshot of this, which is literally true, like when I'm about to say, if people haven't read this before, they're going to think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. The, the upshot of this is this is a very simple object. Literally no one on earth knows how to make this. Literally no one on earth, the greatest engineer we have, if you put them on another planet like earth and gave them 80 years and gave them food and water and some basic shelter would be able to recreate this thing in that 80 years of life. Like it's a, such a complex object. And when you ask how many people went into making this object, the answer is something like 60 or 70 million people are working together to make this. It's not just the people at the factory. It's a massively complex process that produces this pencil that no one knows how to make, but we make them cheaply and easily. So in the case of many times in the case of market activity, what you have is the market as a whole is extremely intelligent, despite no one in the market being all that intelligent or having that much information. Prices are a way of encapsulating information and getting people to act on that information without them even understanding that that's what a price is. That's the kind of the magic of markets. So sometimes people hope that uh, in collective decision making, you know, where markets are lots of individual decision makers reacting to each other uh, through collective process, a vote might be a collective, like a straight collective decision. There might be cases where intelligent is an emergent feature. So a good example of this that a lot of people know about is the jelly bean case or guessing the weight of a pig at the state fair. This is where, the miracle of aggregation. Yeah, exactly. You, uh, If you ask students, like, how many how many jelly beans are in this jar? Any given answer is likely to be erroneous, but their errors tend to be uh, centered around the correct answer. And it turns out that the more people you have guess, if you average all their guesses together, it comes closer and closer to being the right answer. Same thing with like guessing the weight of a pig and so on. So there's some cases where if you're like, what's the weight of how many jelly beans? And you ask the whole country, like the country as a whole on average gets it right, despite most people being wrong. So the question is, is this true of democracy and democratic decision making? And there are all these fancy theorems that try to say that. One is this miracle of aggregation theorem that says, well, if it basically says, imagine people are voting between you and me. Well, if you're completely and totally ignorant, you have no reason to prefer you versus me. So presumably ignorant voters will vote at random. And the nice thing about randomness is that the more of it you have, the less it matters, right? So if we have 100 million people voting, then it's going to be pretty close to, if, if they know literally nothing, you'll get really close to 50% of the votes and I'll get really close to 50% of the votes. Like, you know, over time, it'll just average out. But if there's a small number of people who do know the right answer that you are the better candidate than I am, they'll all vote for you. And so, you know, it might be like if we have like a, a, a really large public with 200 million voters and, uh, you know, 4 million of them are informed and the other 198, 196 million of them are like completely ignorant, then it'll work out that you'll get 51 percent of the vote. Yay. Right. So it's like you'll always win, despite the fact that pe like very few people know anything. The ignorant so people will cancel each other out and the tiny minority of knowledgeable people will tend to select the correct answer. And that's the miracle of aggregation. But I think what you're probably about to say is certain things have to hold true for that to work. And maybe it yes. doesn't with elections. Yeah, that's right. So with all these things, you need certain things like uh, independence. Like you can't just have people copying each other. So imagine it turns out like when you were guessing the jelly bean, like I see that you write 395 down and I really want to impress you and let you know that I'm a good member of our peer group. You know, I'm a good member of the people who do podcasts sometimes group or whatever. So I also write down 395 and then like the next podcaster comes over and is like, oh, I'm going to write 395 too. And now all the podcast people are writing 395 to kind of show off to one another that they're good podcasters. Like, well, now it doesn't work. Or the other problem, but there's also other problems. Like, in fact, people don't really vote randomly. Uh, they just vote for the same party every time. Uh, they vote for things that are like not maybe relevant. Like, so imagine they vote for like the better looking candidate. So when they like look at candidates, there, there's actually a very famous study on this where you, they show all these people, subjects who are not voting pairs of photographs. And they say, who's the better looking person? And unbeknownst to these subjects, they're actually looking at congressional candidates that ran against each other in the real world. It turned out, I can't remember the exact number, but it was something like 85% of the time, the better looking person won, right? Or think about names. So in the US, imagine Tyrone Hussein Hitler runs against Jack Kennedy, just based on the names, who's going to win? 
it's just going to be the names, right? Like just the people have prejudices and so on. So like, remember like when, when Obama was running, you might remember Republicans would go, would make sure to say Barack Hussein Obama. I they do remember. Making, yeah. They were, that was, that was a smart political tactic. It didn't succeed, but it was a smart political tactic because they knew saying Hussein makes him sound like a scary Middle Eastern dictator kind of guy. So they're, they're counting on that to be, to push people away from voting for him. Right. Because certain names sound better to, to groups than others. Right. And that that would change in different countries, of course. Like there are countries where Kennedy will be a bad name and like, you know, Obama might be a good name. So there are all these things that prevent people from actually voting randomly like the theorem requires. That's just it just turns out, empirically speaking, to be false that people do that. They do do it with regard to jelly beans. They do do it with regard to guessing the weight of pigs at state fairs. They don't do that with politics. It's just wrong. Right. And then there are other more sophisticated theorems that try to say similar things. So there's something called um, uh, Condorcet's jury theorem. It, what it basically models voters as is almost like a weighted coin. So imagine I have a coin that's weighted 51% towards heads. Right. Well, and suppose heads is the right answer. Well, if I wait, if I flip it, you know, one time, you have a pretty good chance of getting tails. If I flip it two times, you still have a pretty good chance of getting tails, having tails be the dominant number of flips. But if I flip it, a trillion times, of course, heads is going to win. It'd be a statistical miracle for uh, tails to win under that circumstance. So the thought is if voters are just slightly more likely than not to get the right answer, then the more of them who vote, the more likely it is to, it becomes almost certain that democracy will get the right answer. Though the dark side of this theorem is if voters are slightly less likely than, than chance to get the right answer, if they're more likely to get the wrong answer, then it becomes a statistical certainty that they'll get pick the worst candidate. But once again, First of all, this model, it's modeling voters as if they're independent coin flips. It's, it's like an instance of what's called the binomial model of voting behavior. Uh, just as an aside, as a technical point, people will sometimes go, we know these theories, are, these binomial models are wrong because uh, if they were correct, uh, elections would never be as close as they are. They say that, and one person published a paper saying that in response to me when I used that as a dummy example one time. But these very same people will then use Condorcet's jury theorem, which they can't because they say binomial models are wrong. Okay, away from the technical stuff, back to the main point. <laughs> this thing can't be, it's not true because you know, with coin flips, your last coin flip has no effect on your future coin flip. It's not like because the last coin flip was tails, the next coin flip is more likely to be tails or less likely to be tails. They're independent. In fact, with voters, we know they're just following each other. They copy what the other person does. So it's again like, you flip a coin, like you are a charismatic person and you say you're going to vote heads. So then all your friends vote heads to show that they're one, like they're your friend and they like you and they're one of you. So the model just, again, has nothing. It's mathematically speaking, it's perfectly sound. It just doesn't apply to actual voting behavior with regard to politics. It doesn't even apply to juries for similar reasons. Absolutely. It doesn't apply even to juries. That's right. It would apply. You have to have a simple situation in which the juries like literally don't see the other jurors or know anything about them and they don't deliberate with one another. Ever since um, I learned about the Condorcet jury theorem, I always wondered why, like, are, are there any justice systems that have juries deliberate separately or in like, you know, independent groups of two or something like that so that they're more genuinely uh, independent of each other? Even if they did that, it wouldn't probably wouldn't be enough because there's still just going to be things like walking in, you have biases towards certain kinds of outcomes based upon your politics and things like that. You know, so like, so suppose it's like a police officer who's been charged with excessive violence. Well, if you're a Republican, you're going to be disposed to not charging him. If you're like a libertarian, you're going to be disposed to vote in favor of it. So you already have these things that will prevent independence, even if you literally don't let people deliberate. Uh, and so finally, the most sophisticated one is the one that Landamore spends a lot of time, like really tries to ground her theory on. It's often called uh, the Hong Page theorem. And the basic claim in this theorem is that um, when you're trying to increase the intelligence of a group, there's two ways of doing that. One is if you make everybody in the group more reliable, the group as a whole becomes smarter. If every So if you take a group where every individual has a 51% chance of getting the truth and wave your magic wand and make it so now they each have a 53% chance of getting the truth. Now the group as a whole is smarter and is more likely to get the right answer. But another way to increase the power of the group is to increase cognitive diversity within the group. And the idea is something like if people have different, if they're sophisticated and they have different mental models of the world, we can learn from one another. Imagine it's like a corporation's about to ha has had some sort of problem. And one corporation, one instance of this, just has 15 really smart engineers work on the problem. 
But another corporation has three engineers and two marketing professionals and two ethicists and two lawyers and two management theorists and two sociologists and however other people I need to like get it up to 15. I lost track. You might think maybe the second group would do better than the first group because they're going to know stuff that the other group doesn't know and like they can learn from one another. So that seems pretty plausible. However, once again, there's some problems with this theorem. I kind of go through pretty carefully in the book and I say, if you actually look at the proof of the theorem, it ends up being pretty close to trivial. It pretty comes pretty close to just assuming what it means to prove. And I guess I don't think we'll go through like the technical stuff here. But the other thing is, even if you accept that it applies in certain circumstances, it's very rigoristic. It requires things like you and I, all the people deliberating genuinely agree on what the problem is. We have the same value function. That means we agree on what counts as a solution. So if you and I have different values when it comes to this, it doesn't work. We listen to one another. We each have genuinely sophisticated ways of seeing the world and we can see the problems in other people's like attempts to solve the problem. And when one person comes up with a new attempt to solve the problem, the rest of us listen, et cetera, et cetera. It has all these very demanding things for it to apply. And once again, when you look at actual voter behavior, it's just, they're just not doing that. Uh, it has really very little to do with like elections anyway. It, it, it best would work for things like, you know, the, the example I started with, like you have this, pro- a corporation has a problem and it gets 15 people with different kinds of expertise to try to work together to solve the problem rather than 15 people with the same expertise. That's where it probably works. But it probably it has, has really very little to do with like democracy where people aren't very well informed. They're not sophisticated. They don't listen to one another. They actively make sure they don't listen to one another and try not to learn from each other because that's how you signal loyalty, et cetera, et cetera. So I want to hear about your reactions to deliberative democracy and the idea of deliberation. But first, can you can you just say this is a book about democracy? What working definition are you and Landamore going with when you're talking about democracy? Good question. I come from, uh, it's, it's weird, Landamore and I were at uh, Brown at the same time for a while, and there's sort of like the Brown view of democracy, uh, but she didn't really adopt that view, and I did. So people sometimes use democracy in a more constrained and a less constrained way. And a good way of thinking about it is when people say, oh, judicial review isn't really democratic. You know, that's like a very constrained view of what democracy is. I, I'm going to follow people like David Esland and Tom Christiano and a few other philosophers and, and have like a very open idea of what democracy is. Democracy is a political system in which at some very fundamental level or basic level, political power is distributed pretty close to equally, right? And even on that definition, no actual country is really truly democratic. They're just some are closer to it than others. And for me, then whether you have deliberation or voting or whether in what they vote on, the kind form of government and whether you have many elections or few or referenda or not, or devolved powers or federalism or not, or strong central government or one or two parts of Congress or judicial review or not, or written constitution or not. These to me are just different forms of democracy. And the question is, which is the better one? So sometimes what happens though, is when you criticize the actual governments in the world, like I do and say, these things that I'm calling forms of democracy, as we see them, aren't very good. People say, well, that's not real democracy. It's kind of like the, I, I start the book even by saying, like, think about socialism and how people say, well, the USSR and China and Cambodia and Cuba, that's not real socialism, right? And real socialism always turns out to be the sort of imaginary thing. Real socialism is people jointly own the means of production and behave exactly the way that I, the theorist, want them to behave in my head. And since no people ever actually do that, therefore we never have real socialism. Real socialism turns out only to be an imaginary thing. Slight tangent. Have you looked at Christian Niemitz's book, Socialism, the Failed Idea That Never Dies? I haven't. He documents pretty nicely that that wasn't real socialism argument is almost always disingenuous because it always was real socialism just until the point when it wasn't. Yeah, even though I haven't read that book, I've heard that point before. It's right. You know, the, the person takes over the friendly dictator and it's in Venezuela and it's real socialism working wonderfully. And then a year and a half in when it's clearly not working, it turns out he's actually a fascist or something. Right? And he always was. And he always was. And we never said anything. I different. always hated Tom Brady. Yeah, that's right. It's the same deal. Yeah. So people do that with democracy, too, uh, where they're like, no, no, no. Real democracy is. And then they give like a very rigoristic and strict definition of how people have to behave and how they have to deliberate. Uh, and how they have to react. And that's that's what they mean by democracy. I just think of that as a form of democracy. And it's a question of whether we can actually get it. So Landamore, her section 
is called like, let's try real democracy. And for her, real democracy has to be a system in which power is devolved back down to the people. They actually have a lot of lawmaking ability. And she goes through different ideas of how you might do that. It might be things like having a Wikipedia style editing of the law um, and deliberation through Wikipedia style things. It might be um, randomly selecting some citizens and having them decide policy. It might be lawmakers having to talk to citizens more often in these like open deliberative fora, you know, and, and to her credit, like I'm, I'm pretty skeptical these things were going to work, but she and I were on um, a podcast a while back or some sort of event a while back. And I'm like, you're out there trying to actually experiment with this stuff. I hope it works. Like, I don't think it will, but I hope it, I hope I'm wrong. I hope it does. Like, you know, if, if you can actually overcome some of the defects of democracy through this, great, let's do it. But my worry about it is I just I think that evidence for working is just fairly flimsy. And this weird thing happens where like I've, I've sometimes been accused of cherry picking studies and I, I won't name the person who did this um, that might imitate his voice a little bit. You can tell me like, after the after we're done recording. Yeah. But he was like, I think uh, I really think, Jay, that you're kind of cherry picking studies. And the reason is because, sure, you cited 95 studies that all did this experiment and got the result of X, but I can name one study that got the result Y, and I think that's probably really the one that did it the best. And I'm like, oh, so by cherry picking, you mean summarizing what the field says. It, it really is like the weird thing about delivered democracy is a lot of it's just pure theory. And then when you run experiments, run experiments in laboratories where very little is at stake you typically don't get very good results. And these are experiments that are being done by people that want the result to be positive, right? And then when you try like doing it on a field case, like you get weaker and weaker results. But even if you could get it in an experiment working, this is the thing where it's like, I'm a political scientist and I get 25 people together and I moderate it. Um, I moderate it, <laughs> moderate the deliberation. And lo and behold, the people ended up giving an answer that I thought was pretty good, Right. What happens when you make this an actual political event with real things at stake? How is it going to work? Is it going to get captured by elites? Are the moderators going to try to control it for their own purposes? And, and in the book, in, in this book and other books, I give a list of some of the evidence from deliberation where you find things like there's something called the iron law of polarization where groups tend to diverge from one another. There's all this affective stuff where people fight and get angry. There's language manipulation. And, and frankly, uh, John Dreisick and a few of his co-authors have a recent paper out where they, they talk about some of this stuff. And their response to these criticisms is just to say, well, no, 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 that's not real deliberation. Deliberation is a reason-guided, orderly process of mutual understanding. And what you're talking about is just discussion. They might have called it, and it's like, oh, we're back to the real socialism problem. You're just, you're never going to say deliberation fails because if it fails, you're just not going to call it deliberation. Great. I, yeah, I think it's fair to, to offer counter. Works, and I know because <laughs> if, if, it, if, it, if it doesn't work the way I want it to, it's not real capitalism. QED, I win. Like it's, it's, that's what they're doing all the time. And it's Landamore to her credit kind of starts doing that early on, but then she moves on to just giving substantive ideas for like improvements um, that may or may not work. Yeah. Is it fair to say this very, because I, I like what you said about, dem, uh, about this, this open definition of democracy there's there's kind of a family resemblance to a variety of different political you know ways you might organize uh, a political system that all have to do with very widespread relatively egalitarian distribution of political authority but within that there's a million and one different ways you could do something that would qualify as democratic so when people make these kinds of objections like that's not real democracy or that's not real deliberation I mean, it's, it seems like the honest way to do it is just to say, OK, well, this form of deliberation clearly isn't working so well. Are there other things we can try? And, and Landamore's section, she is creative in making suggestions. Yeah. I want to give you the two objections that occur to me to your position, uh, which I am very sympathetic to. But first, I haven't said anything about the term epistocracy. Can you say something about epistocracy and what it is you're advocating or at least suggesting as a, you know, a fruitful set of experiments? Overall, I have this view that like everyone who exercises power over others, or at least power that matters, not power like choosing the flag color, or choosing the national anthem or kind of trivial things, but power where like something is really at stake, things that are a matter of justice, that they owe it to those people to exercise, to act competently and to act in good faith. And I have this argument for that conclusion. Suppose I'm right about that. I haven't given the argument. Um, this doesn't tell us what to do. Uh, it tells us to do something when groups are incompetent or act, aren't acting in good faith. 
So there's a bunch of things we might do. One is perhaps modifying the timing of government, like slowing down or speeding up the process might make it more competent. It might be changing um, the size of government in terms of like uh, like the number of people working within a particular, that are part of the same demog- uh, government. Uh, so maybe like there's an optimal size to a country and maybe it's like not good to have a million people and not good to have 300 million. Maybe you want to have like 15 million or something. Maybe that improves competence. It could mean uh, changing what's called the scope of government, meaning what does government actually control? So like, here's an argument in fate, like uh, governments shouldn't are not competent to set prices. Therefore, they shouldn't be allowed to. It's a very common argument in economics, right? Like it's just you, you like if they could set prices competently, maybe they'd be allowed to, but they can't. So therefore, we shouldn't let them. Maybe that applies to other things. Maybe government shouldn't have power over certain things because it's not competent to make those decisions. Um, almost everyone agrees with that. They probably think government shouldn't be allowed to tell me whom to marry because they not just because it's my right, but because they wouldn't make a good choice. Uh, and finally, you might consider changing the form of government. You might change the form of government while still being democratic. Like maybe it turns out that the Westminster model works worse or better than the US model. Maybe it turns out that having a bicameral legislature works worse than having a unicameral legislature. Maybe it works out that having a bill of rights and judicial review is a good thing or not a good thing. So that's still all within democracy, but you might also consider having non-democratic governments. So for instance, if it turned out that making you dictator led to perfect justice, I would be in favor of making you dictator. And I would think that anyone who disagreed with that is just simply evil. I'd be like, if they're like, no, no, I should be allowed to vote. We shouldn't have a dictator who creates justice. I'd be like, why? Because it's more important you get your way than we do the right thing. Yeah. Oh, so you're an evil person. Yeah. I mean, like that's obviously the reason we don't have dictators is because they don't actually work. I think that's a big part of it. Uh, so what I call epistocracy, and this actually isn't my word, what's called epistocracy as coined by the philosopher David Esland, um, Landamore really wants to call it epistemocracy because that's better Greek, but but Esalen decided that's- I noticed she went back and forth in her sections. Yeah. I was like, I agree with you. Epistemocracy is more accurate, but the term that is out there that was there before you and I started writing about this is epistocracy. So I'm just sticking to it because that's the word that others are using. Uh, so epistocracy is any kind of political system in which power is by law apportioned to knowledge in some way. In some way, voting ability or power is weighted given knowledge. So for instance, John Stuart Mill, the great economist and philosopher in his book, Considerations on Representative Government, he advocated a form of epistocracy called plural voting. He said, everyone should get one vote, but some people should get more than one. And he had some criteria for what that might be. Perhaps if you're a member of certain professions or you have certain kinds of educational background or something. And the thought was, this will be a system in which that has the best overall consequences. And he tries to make that argument. Um, a very crude version of epistocracy, which again, if it worked, I'd be in favor of them, but I don't think this is the right one to try. But if, again, if it worked, I'd, I'd go for it, is you know, you have to get a voter license. You By default, you get no votes and you can only vote if um, uh, if you like pass a test. Like, and so we have to pass a driver's test. Another version that's advocated by the uh, philosopher Claudia Lopez Guerra is what's called a voting lottery. By default, no one gets to vote. Before an election takes place, 20,000 citizens are selected at random. They and only they will be allowed to vote. Because there's a randomness, it's fair. There's no demographic bias or anything like that. But before they're allowed to vote, they are paid to go through some sort of competence, basic competence building exercise. And if they don't do the exercise, or if they fail it, then they're not allowed to vote. Right. And the thing that I'd like to experiment with is what's called enlightened preference voting. So the way this works, it's based on a method that's been used by political scientists and economists for a long time to actually test things like how do demographics affect voting or how does knowledge affect people's behavior? So what it works is on election day, everyone gets to vote. Um, They really, in fact, get to kind of vote as equals. It might not actually qualify as a form of, of epistocracy given this point, but everyone gets to vote. But when they vote, they do three things. They tell us what it is they want. So whatever it is we're voting on, they give us their answer to that. They tell us who they are. They like write down or there's some way we catalog their demographic information because this affects people's voter behavior. And finally, we give them a quiz of basic political knowledge, say 40 questions with things like what's the unemployment rate? Who's your senator? Which party controls Congress, et cetera? Whatever. What's the price of milk? Whatever you want it to be is on there. When you get these three bits of information, you can then statistically simulate what would a public that is demographically identical to the actual public. 
have voted for had it gotten a perfect score on that quiz, right? We can simulate the actual public probably will get like a 13 out of 40 on that quiz. But what if an otherwise identical public with exactly the same people in it, same income level, same race, same gender, same whatever, religion and so on, had gone to 40 on the quiz, how would they have voted? So this method allows you to estimate that. It's not guaranteed there'll be convergence. It could turn out that they don't converge on anything. Um, and so I think we should try that. Technically, this might be a form of democracy because it's not like you get excluded based upon how well you do on the quiz. It's not like you get 6.7 votes and I get 2.4 and she gets 6.9 and that person gets 15.8. It just is like we all are kind of equal inputs into the statistical black box that then simulates an enlightened public. In it's theory, it's like a cheaper and easier way to do what the alleged purpose of public education is supposed to be to to, you know, find the answer to what would uh, a citizenry of well-educated and responsible citizens want yeah and exactly and but you don't have to educate everyone yeah and 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 you can't i mean education doesn't work it's one of the real bummers about this literature um i like to tell my students about this uh so i think Ilya soman has this in his book um it works out like in the pew poll of knowledge that going from having a high school diploma to having um a bachelor's degree predicts you'll get something like one extra question right on the quiz uh, it has education has very little independent effect on voter knowledge. Uh, it is true that educated people are more knowledgeable than non-educated people, but it's not the education doing the trick. It's all the stuff that comes with education that makes them. That's not the education. Uh, we don't. We were very bad at making people knowledgeable. And I recommend Brian Kaplan's book, The Case Against Education, to hear more about that argument. Yeah. So, um, it, you know, exactly. That's it's like a way of estimating or like getting the smart, informed public without actually making them smart and informed. And this is a method that's been used for decades by economists, sociologists, political scientists of all different ideological stripes to test things like how does knowledge affect people's voter preferences? How does demographics affect it? Like one time I was giving a talk at Wellesley one time uh, and it was like kind of a crash course on econ stuff to like non-econ students. And we were talking about the economics of immigration and trade. And a student raised her hand and said, well, you're you're like a rich white guy. And uh that's maybe that's like why you think this, right? I mean, a lot of economists are rich. A lot of economists are either white or Asian. A lot of them are male. So maybe the reason that they're in favor of free trade is because they're rich white slash Asian men, right? So I think she thought it would piss me off and it didn't. I went, that is an interesting and important social scientific hypothesis, but we can test it. The way we would test it is by using an enlightened preference method where we can see like, do, how does race affect people's views about trade in, while controlling for these other variables? How does knowledge affect uh, their views on trade, controlling for other variables? How does getting a PhD in economics control their views on trade, controlling for other variables? In fact, people have done studies on this. There's actually a lot of tests, including, like you mentioned, Brian Kaplan. He does stuff like this in his book. Uh, and it works out that actually income is negatively correlated with support for free trade. Uh, these racial things are actually negatively correlated and, um, and maleness is negatively correlated, it, or I think it was, or maybe it was neutral. Um, in fact, it's just the econ and the knowledge that's doing the trick. So it, you have a perfectly valid social scientific hypothesis. It's been tested and falsified. And to her credit, she's like, I explained it kind of care. And she's like, okay, great. That sounds right. Like, good. Just wanted to make sure. Yeah, you know, and so I think she's like, I was like, gotcha, but I'm like, no, no, that's worth testing. And this is how we know. This is how we know this stuff, right? So yeah, why don't we get a smart public on the cheap? Here are two, objections is too strong, but two thoughts that I have about experimenting in a more epistocratic direction. So one is just like a Burkean conservatism kind of objection. Democracies may not be perfect. They may not even be great, but on a large scale, they seem to be doing pretty well, and they they importantly seem to avoid horrors, which historically is kind of a big deal. So maybe we just shouldn't rock the boat and stick with what we got. What, what do you say to that kind of objection? Yeah, actually, like I'm thinking against democracy, I put something like that in there. And I said, I think this actually is the best objection to my view. Um, a lot of people think something else is the best objection. I think this is the best one. Uh, because it's true. My, I'm, I'm very skeptical about, you know, having a epistocratic vanguard come in and like take over and like just change everything. I think we'll definitely get all sorts of unexpected consequences. The system won't work the way that we think. So what I really recommend doing is starting on a small scale and experimenting in relatively stable environments to see what happens and maybe learn from that experience. And then if it works, scale it up. 
You know, so I, I think in the book, I say, try Denmark and New Hampshire. Don't try Louisiana and don't try France, right? Those aren't the places to start. Uh, and then maybe we can learn how to make it work. And then we, and if it works, people will just copy it on their own probably because it's working. Um, but definitely be cautious. And I'm like that with a lot of views about social change, even things like, you know, I said, I'm, I'm an open borders advocate. And I have to admit, if I could wave my magic wand and get open borders tomorrow, I think I would just wave it and see what happens. But I'm also self-skeptical enough to know that there'd probably be a lot of bad crap I hadn't anticipated in some stuff that I had, and it wouldn't quite work the way that we think because we're all, even the best of us, kind of idiots when it comes to social change. That's a good answer. It's hard to take a, a real overview and imagine somehow being given the power to wave a magic wand and create dramatic social change. In my head, I feel like I would try to be pretty humble about that. I think if the opportunity actually came to me, I would be horrified and probably not wave it for much of anything. One more thing on that too is, I do think that we have disasters happening in democracy all the time, like genuine disasters that we just don't really care about and pay much attention to. So, you know, if Brian Kaplan were here, he might say the fact of closed borders is a disaster. It's just we don't notice it. So for what it's worth, I do think democracies often make disastrous choices, but maybe less so than dictatorships and other alternative forms of government. He would say that. He has said that. He's He's been on the show three times, so... Uh, okay. I, no, and I and I agree, and I think also I think also internationally, whatever whatever good things democracy can do, it, it seems at least in the case of the U.S. that it doesn't constrain the uh, our foreign policy very much in the way it maybe constrains our, some of our domestic policy. Absolutely. Okay, so here's my other my other objection. What if it's the case? So I I spoke to Bruce Bueno de Mesquita, and he's a political scientist who the way he doesn't talk exactly about like democracies versus autocracies, but he's developed what he calls selectorate theory. And basically the idea is there are just large coalition polities and small coalition polities. And it basically turns on how many people do you need effectively to gain and maintain control politically. And democracies are generally those, he models this mathematically, those political systems that require a very large number of what he calls the winning coalition in order to maintain power. And his claim, and I'm not qualified to really evaluate it, but it, it occurred to me that it's relevant here. His claim is that with a few hundred years and, and you know, a few hundred like different countries worth of data that he's tried to model this on, past a certain point of increasing the size of the winning coalition or, you know, getting to a certain threshold in democracy, they just don't go backwards. They only go more democratic. They don't go less democratic. And I think in his his claim is that the only exceptions are the countries that were conquered by Nazi Germany in World War II. So accepting that premise, if it's just factually the case that you're not likely to go less democratic once you get past a certain threshold, then the only way forward to improve governance is to experiment with variants of democracy that are just going to be better. Now, maybe epistocracy counts as a variant of democracy that could be better, but that idea that maybe it's just not possible, so you've got to work within something vaguely democratic if you want to improve governance. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I wonder about that because there's all this literature, and I'm sure he has a smart answer to it. I bet if he were here, he'd have some like very quick. He would he would know what I'm about to say and have a smart answer. I don't know what it is. Uh, there's all this literature on democratic backsliding that says actually democracy vacillates. And in fact, countries are generally getting less democratic over the past 15 years. You know, so if you Google democratic backsliding, you'll start seeing papers arguing that. Um, you might also say that, again, some of these forms of epistocracy are you are variants of democracy, or at least they're variants where there's lots and lots of participation. They're not really about concentrating power in the hands of a small number of people. They're just about having power spread out widely, but in a slightly different way. But there's one other final point, which is just about, you know, what are we doing when we talk about this stuff? So at the end of the day, I'm a philosopher, you know, I'm not a policy wonk. I'm not, I'm not a politician. Uh, I'm not a lobbyist. I just want to ask about what's just and what's good. So for me, I, I actually think like, like if someone's like, what would a perfectly just society look like? A society made up not of angels, but where a society where literally everyone is morally decent, right? Just no one's bad. That's it. No one's perfect. Just everyone is not bad. I think that would clearly be an anarchist society. And I don't mean some sort of Rothbardian capitalist uh, anarchism of the form where like there's private protection agencies that we pay to protect us. I mean, 
utopian anarchism where there's literally not even enforcement mechanisms. Because I think a lot of the institutions we have in politics are exist as a response to depravity, right? So it's like asking what kind of criminal justice system we, we have if everyone were decent? None, we wouldn't need it. What kind of military we have if everyone were decent? None, we wouldn't need it. What kind of lock would you have on your door if everyone were decent? You wouldn't bother have one because no you, one will rob you. You would only really need like institutions to to manage like honest misunderstandings if you're just yeah. talking about people who are decent rather than depraved. Yeah. And if I know everyone's decent, that means whenever you disagree with me, I know it's just an honest misunderstanding. I don't want to fight you. We just figure it out. We'd rather flip a coin and live with the results of that than fight. That's our view because we know you're decent. You know, I'm decent, et cetera. So a lot of our institutions exist as a response to depravity. And I go, that's, that's what justice requires. Decency requires that. It requires a kind of cooperative anarchism. Is utopian. It sounds like, but that's never going to happen. I'm like, oh no, I totally agree with you. I just taught a class for a semester about how crappy people are. I totally agree. It's not going to happen, but nevertheless, that's what is right. It's the right thing. So even with this case, uh, I don't even think democracy, I think democracy is like that too. Democracy is like a criminal court. Like if we were good, we wouldn't have it. Uh, epistocracy, if we were good, we wouldn't have it. But nevertheless, for me, it's like asking, why do we have these things? Is it really a just thing? What's the reason for it? Is there something that's better? And if it turns out it's better, but we won't do it because we don't want to, well, that's a bummer, but we still should know that that's the case. Imagine you say, Russia is a bad government. And I go, guess what? I have God here. And God, as you know, is the perfect consummate social scientist. And God has written down proof that Russia will never change. What's the point of saying Russia is bad? You're like, well, okay, I'm not going to change Russia, but it's still interesting that it's bad, right? And God would be like, yeah, that's right. So even here, if it turns out that we'll never be epistocratic, if I'm right that epistocracy is better than democracy, I still think that's an interesting result, even if we're going to be stuck with it. No, I think that's true. That's definitely a good point. I think my view of demo of like the value of democracy, because I'm not I'm not in love with it. I like your point where you compare reasons for a favoring democracy as being like, you know, you like it for instrumental reasons, for symbolic reasons, or like for inherent reasons. And you're interested in democracy for instrumental reasons. You know, does it actually deliver the goods, you know, whatever, whatever counts as good results, is democracy good at giving good results? And my view of democracy is that it seems like one possible and very popular, relatively successful way among many of constraining political power, which mm -hmm. is, that's predictable as a libertarian that that would be my interest in democracy. And there are ways that it maybe doesn't do that so well. And there are probably ways of going more democratic that would do that better, like requiring super majorities or, you know, having chambers that are empowered only to repeal laws or mandatory sunset provisions, things like that. But those yeah. are those are the things that I think I enjoy about democracy, but I could be wrong about all of them. Do you have any recommendations beyond the ones you've given? You've mentioned I'm going to include in the show notes a link to the iPencil essay, the book's Democracy for Realists, Neither Liberal Nor Conservative. Do you want to mention anything else you might recommend as a good uh, supplement or something that would complement this work nicely? Great. Um, two things. One is Liliana Mason has a really good book called Uncivil Agreement. And it's all about more evidence of the kind of stuff I'm talking about, about how why people join parties despite not really believing them and what's really going on in their heads. Um, and finally, I'm not usually one to plug my own stuff, um, not because I'm modest or something, but I don't know, I find it distasteful or something. I'm too arrogant to plug my own stuff typically, but uh, someone else should do it. Yeah, but I, I, do I, do, I have a cool book coming out um, in March called Democracy, a Guided Tour uh, with Oxford. And it's what it is, is it's like look through the history of thought about democracy, about why it might be good is it's written as a for and against book among all the uh, various important thinkers of the past, including recent people over the past 70 years. Are you co-authoring it or is it just? No, it's, it's just, I'm, I'm just reporting what people have said. It's, it's really an intellectual history where um, I look at five major values that people might think democracy are important and arguments for and against democracy on behalf of those values, including stability, um, the virtue of citizenry, the wisdom of the group, liberty, and finally equality. And so it's it's written as a pair of chapters. Here's all the most important arguments in favor of democracy from the standpoint of the value of stability. Here's arguments that are skeptical of that or against democracy from that value. And then move on to virtue, same thing. Um, and I feel like if you read that, it's a very, you'll quickly learn a lot of what philosophers have thought, but you'll also learn very quickly a lot of, about what sociologists, economists, historians, and economists have shown in the past 70 years as well. 
So you can learn a ton of democratic theory very quickly with this new book. Um, I'm pretty happy with it. Um, I'm, I, as a, and I'm writing this as a person who genuinely, generally doesn't like intellectual history uh, for its own sake. So I basically wrote this as a book of intellectual history for people who don't care about intellectual history. Well, my next question was, do you have any upcoming projects? So you've answered that. Do you have a, a rough idea of the release date? I think it's March 21st, you know, in a bookstore near you. Perfect. Okay. There's a pre-order link on Amazon. I'll write something in the show notes so people are aware that this is coming out. That's Democracy, a guided tour, right? Yeah. And where can people find you if they want to keep up with your work? Frankly, I don't I do not do a lot of public stuff anymore. I'm not on Twitter. I barely ever blog. I've noticed. I'm just in the shadows now uh, where where I belong doing dark things. But I mean, read journals and read like, you know, you'll see me out there. You're just doing pointless things like publishing books and articles. You're not doing the important stuff on Twitter. I'm I'm something of a pugnacious person. So I I was on Twitter for two weeks and I said, this is not going to be good for my mental health. Do you feel like it brought out the worst in you? No, I was I for I really held myself back from like fighting with people, but I feel like it would eventually bring out the worst in me. So I I didn't do it. I got off. Yeah. I yeah. think there was one incident where like um somebody like an organized I mean it was it was clearly an organized mob, like, like hey, let's all mob Jay Brennan at this one time for this evil thing that he said. Um and I don't mind that because when you write a book saying like you think almost all people are stupid, when a bunch of stupid people come after you, you're just like, ah, they're stupid. Who cares? Right. But but I'm like, this is not going to be a good situation. And and there are people who do Twitter really well, but they're, I, I see a lot of my friends either fighting with people or worse, becoming kind of syncophants to people that hate them, which is an even worse thing, maybe. So I'm not going to do either of those things. I've taken the temptation away by not being on Twitter, by not doing a lot of like social media type stuff. Uh, you're a good man. I'm not a big name, so I don't have anyone like coming coming after me, but I do see those temptations and the and also the temptation to see other people in a poorer light than you otherwise would they might be there might be bad people but you see the worst of people and um for what it's worth i try to look robin hansen is my twitter role model i think the way he behaves on twitter is probably as close to how i would like to behave yeah all right well my guest once again has been philosopher and georgetown university professor jason brennan and his book once again, co-authored with Ellen Landamore is Debating Democracy. Do we need more or less? Jason, thank you for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.